Our text this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to read the entire chapter. And before we get to the book of Samuel, we learn from the book of Judges that Israel had descended into a very sad state of evil and apostasy. And in the book of Judges, we hear this repeated refrain, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as the book of Samuel begins, we learn that also Eli's sons have corrupted even the priesthood. However, God shows his mercy by raising up Samuel as a faithful prophet and priest. But now as we come to our text in chapter 8, as we'll see, Samuel has become old, and the elders of Israel are starting to think about what the future of their nation might look like. And so we'll begin reading now 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll read the entire chapter. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So far the word of the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, as human beings, we often want things to be done our way. We encounter a problem, we think up a clever solution, and we don't have time to hear what other people think or hear the potential flaws in our own solution. Maybe there's a big decision to be made in your family, or maybe at school, or even here in this church, and you think that your solution is the best, really the only solution. And in our text this morning, the elders of Israel are in a similar situation. Samuel is becoming old. His sons are certainly not the kind of people who you would want to have as judge over you. And so the elders bring this petition to Samuel. They see a problem. There's this problem of leadership once Samuel dies. And they think that they have come to him with a very wise, a very clever solution. They say to Samuel, give us a king. However, this is not a wise solution. Our text this morning, God makes that very clear. Yet even though the elders refuse to listen to the wisdom of God, they insist on their own plan, God still uses this request for a king to proclaim the gospel message to them. And he teaches his people that they must submit to their heavenly king. And so we'll take as our theme this morning, the Lord teaches his people to submit to their heavenly king. We'll see three things. First, by reminding them of his kingly deliverance. Second, by warning them of their king's ways. And thirdly, by granting their request for a king. So first, the Lord teaches his people to submit to their heavenly king by reminding them of his kingly deliverance. So in our text this morning, there are actually two problems which the elders see. The first, as we know, is Joel and Abijah, the two sons of Eli. They are taking bribes, they're perverting justice. Clearly, these are not men you want to replace Samuel. And the second problem was hinted at in verse 20. We read there that another reason the elders wanted a king was so that he would go out and fight their battles for them. And if we turn ahead to 1 Samuel 12, verse 12, we learn that it was actually Nahash, king of the Ammonites, who was threatening the Israelites at this time. This is why the elders are asking for someone to fight their battles. And so the elders bring their solution to Samuel. In verse 5, we read these words. Behold, you, Samuel, are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so we see that the solution the elders bring to Samuel was a man, a king who would rule over them, who would administer justice and fight their battles for them. And on the surface, I think this seems like a reasonable request. If we think of our own lives, almost every aspect of our lives are structured with some sort of human authority, whether that's the parents in the home, or perhaps the principal at school, or even the elders here in church. These are all different levels of authority which we have in our lives. And I think it's important to be clear that there's nothing wrong with human authority. There's nothing wrong with having human leadership. In fact, God makes it clear in his word that this is a good thing, something which he has blessed us with. And so for the elders of Israel also, there was nothing wrong necessarily with their idea of asking for a king. 
This is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verses 14 and 15 there say, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations around me, then hear what the Lord says. He says, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And yet, even with this apparently positive endorsement of their plan, their desire for a king, Samuel himself becomes very angry with their request. And even the Lord himself condemns their request for a king. He says to Samuel, verse 7, They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so what is going on here? Why does God say that the people are rejecting him when really they're just doing what is suggested in Deuteronomy chapter 17? Well, the problem, brothers and sisters, is that the elders of Israel and the people of Israel with them are putting their trust in a man to save them. They believe that a king, like all the nations around them, is the answer to their troubles, their need for justice, and their need for a protection. In fact, they've done exactly what Psalm 146 tells us not to do, the psalm we just sung before the service. It says, put no trust in prince or ruler, because in him is no help or power. And so the people had lost sight of the fact that it was the Lord their God who brings them justice. It was the Lord their God who had delivered them from their enemies. After all, God had shown this to them time and time again, in word and in deed, beginning with the great exodus from Egypt. Now true, Moses was there as a great leader, and he played a very important role, but ultimately it was the Lord who had brought them out of Egypt with his mighty hand, with his outstretched arm. And it was the Lord who had punished the Egyptians, brought justice to the Israelites with the plagues, and by leading his people safely through the Red Sea. And even more close to our text this morning, if we look back just one chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 7, the elders of Israel themselves had witnessed a great deliverance from the Lord. In chapter 7, verse 10, we read that the Philistines had drawn near to attack the Israelites. However, it was the Lord who thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, and the Lord threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before the Israelites. And here again, Samuel played an important role as an intercessor, but ultimately it was the Lord who won this battle. It was the Lord who brought thunder from heaven on the Philistines and had defeated their enemies once again. And if we think back now to Deuteronomy chapter 17, this is actually made very clear in this chapter as well. Yes, the people were allowed to ask for a king, but God also told them what he expected this king to look like. And when we go through those verses, we realize that this king, which God would allow them to have, was really nothing like the kings of the nations around them. In Deuteronomy 17, God says that this king should not acquire many horses. And this would show that really the battle belonged to the Lord. God's king was not to have many wives or to take excessive silver or gold so that his heart would not be turned away from the Lord and so that he would not be a burden upon his people. 
And at the end of Deuteronomy 17, we learn that God's king was even meant to write his own copy of the law of God, to have it with him all the time so that he could read it, meditate on it each and every day. This was the kind of king which God had desired for his people. A king who would be humble, a servant of the Lord, a king who would, who would point his people to their true heavenly king and to teach his people to look to God for true justice and deliverance. And living after the New Testament age as we are, hearing these requirements from Deuteronomy 17, it's really like a, a megaphone just proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Now, boys and girls, just think about this for a moment. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, was he riding on a, a great war horse? Well, no, he was riding on a, a humbled donkey. Was Jesus' heart ever turned away from the Lord, whether by relationships or by worldly wealth? Well, no, certainly not. Even direct temptation from the devil himself was not enough to turn the heart of Jesus away from, from God, from the true heavenly king. And we can ask ourselves, well, how familiar was Jesus with the law of God? Would he have known it as well as a king who had his own copy of it with him all the time? Well, if we think back to when Jesus was only 12 years old, there he is sitting in the temple, listening to the teachers of the law, but who are the people amazed at? They're not amazed at the teachers, they're amazed at Jesus Christ and the, the wisdom he shows, the questions that he is asking. You know, it's like a young person today, maybe their first time in catechism class, and a few minutes in, it's, it's they who are asking the difficult questions and making the minister stumble over himself. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ was like, even as a youth. And brothers and sisters, this is the king which God desired to have for his people. One who himself was humble, and one who himself would not point to himself as the source of, of justice and deliverance, but one who would point to God as the true source, the true king, who would bring deliverance to them. And yet we learn in our text this morning that the people reject God's idea of a king. And in doing so, they actually reject God himself as their heavenly king. God has shown, them, God has shown himself to be a faithful king, delivering them time and time again, and yet they forsake him. And God himself even tells them, this is what you have been doing ever since I brought you up out of Egypt. The natural inclination of the hearts of the Israelites was to reject their true heavenly king and to turn to other, other gods or other men to deliver them. And so we can ask ourselves also this morning, what is the inclination of the church today? Which, where do our hearts look for deliverance? When we need justice, who do we turn to? One of the pressing issues in the church today is the increasing secular culture around us and the, the challenges which that can bring to our religious freedom, we might ask ourselves, will we be able to maintain charitable status either as a church or as a school? Will our schools even continue to receive funding or be allowed to operate? 
And as parents, we may ask ourselves, will our children even be allowed to gather here and worship in 20 or even 10 years? And these are certainly pressing concerns and things which should be on our heart. But the question is, how do we address these concerns? Do we just count on the, the right government coming into power at the right time? Or do we count on specific groups such as ARPA to, to make sure our voice is heard amongst the government and to pray that they would bring the justice and deliverance which we are asking for? Well, brothers and sisters, praise God that we do indeed have freedom. And praise God that groups like ARPA can continue to do their work. But don't lose sight of the fact that it is indeed God who deserves the praise and not the men. After all, God is the one who is in control. It is he who will bring about justice and deliverance. It is God who is our king. He loves his church. He's preserved his church throughout all the ages, and he will continue to do so for eternity. And so we come to our second point by warning them of their king's ways. Our God is a very gracious God, brothers and sisters. And even though the elders have just brought this request, this rejection of God, he does not give them their request right away. But he tells Samuel to warn the people, warn them what, what the ways of this king whom they want so badly would be. And this warning comes to us in the verses 10 through 17 of our text. And as we read through these verses, there was one word which kept popping up throughout these verses. And that one word was take. The king which the Israelites wanted would take. In verse 11, he will take your sons and put them in his army. Verse 13, he will take your daughters, they will be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields, vineyards, olive orchards, give them to his servants. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards. Verse 16, he will take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flock. Just picture the scene, brothers and sisters. The elders are there before Samuel. They've asked him for a king. He's just told them that they will, the king will take everything they have. But then Samuel delivers one more knockout blow. Samuel says, even you yourselves, the king will take. He will take you. You will be his servants, even his slaves. Now, this might sound very jarring to us. But the Israelites actually might not have been so surprised at this message. After all, this was standard practice of kings in the time of Israel. They would take, they would take, and they would take. And yet, even though the Israelites know this, we can see just how thoroughly, how completely the Israelites are rejecting God as their true king. After all, brothers and sisters, the Lord himself had demanded nothing less than total devotion to him in every aspect of their lives. Remember the well-known Shema, which we read 
after the law this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses proclaimed these words of the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Full allegiance was due to the Lord since he was their heavenly king. But now the Israelites have come to Samuel and asked for an earthly king to submit themselves to completely. And yet, we realize that there's a fundamental difference between the demand which the Lord places on his people and the demand which a earthly king would place on his people. The Lord had already delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He had already brought them justice. And as they had seen, he continues to do so. He continues to bring deliverance, and he continues to bring them justice from their enemies. As we saw in chapter 7, they had witnessed this firsthand against the Philistines. And so the Israelites, they did not need to ask for a king who would bring them justice and who would fight their battles. God already was doing this. He had done this in the past. He had done it just one chapter earlier, and they could be confident that he would be a faithful God and continue to do it in the future as well. And we learn this truth every Sunday morning when we read from the law. Boys and girls, maybe I can ask you this question again. Do you know how the law of God begins? What are the first words that God says? He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This teaches us that God first delivered his people, took them from slavery in Egypt, liberated them, brought them justice, and only then does he give them his requirements, his law, how they are to submit themselves to him. And this truth is made even more clear when we think ahead to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, how God reveals himself in his one and only Son. Like his heavenly Father, Jesus Christ also demands everything from us. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus himself quotes from the Shema he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And elsewhere, we learn what Jesus teaches the cost of following him is like. In Matthew 10, verse 37, just one example, Jesus says these words, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then one more line, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now these are a great demand on our life. And we might ask ourselves, how can Jesus make these demands? How can he demand that we lose our lives for his sake? Well, brothers and sisters, it's because Jesus first lost his life for our sake. He laid down his life for his sheep. He emptied himself completely, became a servant. And in doing so, he delivered us from our own slavery to sin. And he has already fully justified us 
in the sight of God. This is how Jesus comes to us. He does not demand our lives for no reason. He demands our allegiance to him because he first gave his life for us. And so the question is, brothers and sisters, which king do you want to give your life to? Do you want to give your life to an earthly king who would do nothing but take? Or do you want to give your life to your heavenly king who has given his everything for you? And so we come to our third point by granting their request for a king. The Lord ends his warning about their earthly king in verse 18 with these words. He says, And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Well, why won't the Lord answer them? It's because they are following the wrong king. They are following a king whom they have chosen a king who will do nothing but take from them rather than following their true and their heavenly king. And for us, brothers and sisters, this truth is even more clear. Do we desire to follow our own king or or do we desire to follow God's king whom he chose even before the foundation of the world, the king who gave us his everything, our Lord Jesus Christ? God's plan of salvation is settled in Jesus Christ. Jesus has brought us deliverance. He has brought us justice. We do not need to look for another king. We need only to trust in the king whom God has already given us. And back to our text, even after hearing this warning from the Lord through Samuel, the people refused to obey it. They insist on having their way, on having their king. And how often don't we think that our way is the best? We hear God speak in his word. We hear him teach that he is our heavenly king, that he has brought us justice and deliverance. And yet somehow we don't always fully trust in this heavenly king. Now it is certainly difficult at times to understand how God might bring good out of a situation when the church is threatened or when we experience injustice in our lives. We might react to these situations with worry or anxiety or some solution we've thought up on our own instead of humbly bringing ourselves before the word of God, accepting his teachings, accepting his warnings, and trusting in God as our king who will lead us, who will protect us, whatever comes our way. And as we learn in our text this morning, the Israelites, they failed in doing this. And so God actually, he grants them their request. He gives them the king that they asked him for. And in the next number of chapters of Samuel, we'll learn that this king is actually King Saul. Saul is the king which the people had been wanting. Saul is the king who would, they thought would bring justice and would deliver them from their enemies. And yet, just as the people had rejected God as their king, so the Lord would soon reject Saul as his king. 
And yet, he gave them this king. He gave them Saul so that they could experience these consequences for themselves, so that they could experience the warnings which God had given them for themselves, so that they could see their error and possibly turn back to God. And this is how God also works with us, with his people. He shows us the way. He shows us the path of salvation. But at times we resist. We resist the way which God has shown. We resist the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. We follow our own path. We do what we think is best. Now God does not do this. He does not let us go our own way for a time because he's unloving or uncaring or because he has no power to do otherwise. No, God does this out of love. He does this to discipline us. He lets us also experience the consequences of going our own path, of not fully entrusting our lives to our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see our error by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we realize our folly and God turns us back to our heavenly king. We see him as the true king who we should submit our lives to. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, the question is, who is king of this church? And who do we as believers desire to serve the most? And when the church experiences the attacks of the evil one, and we will experience them, in fact, we already are, there will be more in the future, who are we going to turn to? And to put it on a more personal level, are you experiencing this morning the consequences of following your own path, of rejecting the Lord as your King and Jesus Christ as your Savior? Is the sin in your life doing nothing but, but take everything from you? Has it taken away that joy of fully trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, brothers and sisters, turn back to God. Turn to your heavenly King. Submit your lives to Him. Submit your life to the King who gave His only begotten Son for you. Jesus Christ who gave His own life for you, who came into the world as a ransom for many. Amen.